0: Now, the focus of this sermon will be on Mark 10, verse 45, and that is the very last sentence we read in the scripture reading. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what we're going to do in the next two hours is we're going to unpack... In the next 30 minutes, hopefully, we're going to unpack every part of this verse in order to see how Jesus is our satisfaction. And here are just some of the questions that we're going to ask and answer. Who is the Son of Man? Where did He come from? Why did He come? What did He do? Who reaps the benefits? And who are the many? And so let's take these one at a time. Who is the Son of Man? In many circles, it's common to hear people say that Son of Man is a reference to the humanity of Jesus, and Son of God is a reference to the deity of Jesus. But that's simply not true from a biblical point of view. Son of Man is a reference to both the deity and the humanity of Jesus with a strong emphasis on His deity, And when Jesus uses this language, describing himself as the Son of Man, he's not using a new to him title. He is using a title in reference to the Christ that was mentioned in the Old Testament. The Jewish theologians and scholars of Jesus' day had a belief that the Son of Man was to be an invincible superhero. Someone like a new Joshua or new David who would rise up and overthrow all the religious and political enemies of Israel at the point of his sword. And he would do so through things like revolution and warfare and conquest. But the Jewish theologians, the Pharisees and scribes were not the only ones who held that view. It appears that in the context of Mark 10, even Jesus' disciples had that view. How do we know? Well, we know because when Jesus said, the Son of Man must go up to uh, Jerusalem, the Son of Man will go up to Jerusalem and be delivered, all they seem to have heard is that the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. They were triggered by this language, Son of Man, Jerusalem. And they began to wonder in the context of the story, who is the greatest? Who's going to sit at the right and left hand of the Son of Man when He comes in this glorious kingdom that they had heard about? So they have these visions of grandeur racing through their heads, and they start jockeying for position in the glorious kingdom of the Son of Man. They didn't seem to hear the rest of what Jesus said. Now, we don't want to be too hard on the Jewish theologians or the disciples. They did have some biblical basis for their view on the Son of Man as this glorious King and this majestic Savior. And they had that view because of things they saw in the Old Testament prophets, for example. The key scripture text for this is found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where we read, Daniel say, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him, this one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion, Dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so we can understand why the Jewish theologians and the disciples of Jesus thought when they heard Son of Man, glorious King, majestic Savior, power, majesty, strength, honor, but they didn't think about the things Jesus attached to Son of Man. So they were right about some things, but then they were right about other I mean they were right about some things, some things they were wrong about other things. They were right that the son of man was to be a sovereign lord and majestic savior, but they were wrong about how he would get there. And that's where Jesus comes in. You see, they failed to see that the Son of Man would only be crowned Sovereign Lord and Majestic Savior after He suffered in service to God and after He gave His life as a ransom for the many. Now, Jesus is standing there. He is the Son of Man in the flesh. He knows more about the Son of Man than anyone else in the room, than anyone else in all the land. He understands the mission and the purpose of the Son of Man better than everyone else. And he describes, as you just heard, what he believed the Son of Man was intended to do. That the Son of Man was to be the suffering servant of the Lord who came into the world from heaven to rescue his people. And so in Jesus' way of thinking, the Son of Man was first and foremost a meek and humble servant, not a high and mighty soldier. So Jesus explains clearly to His disciples that it was the mission of the Son of Man. It was His mission to experience shame before honor, weakness before power, death before life and humiliation, before exaltation. And all of this in order to ransom His people from sin and from death. Which leads us to the question, well, what did the Son of Man come to do? Why did He come? Jesus says He came to serve and to be served and to give His life. But what does that mean? Well, in the context of what we just heard, it means that He came to experience the pain and the sorrows and the sufferings that all sinners, that all of His people deserve to experience. He came to give His life at the cross, to lay down His life, and to experience not only death, but judgment from God for the sins of His people. That's why He says to His disciples, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over. And then He describes the terrible, horrible things that were going to happen to Him as a result of going up to Jerusalem. He explains that He is going to be mistreated both by Jewish people and also by Roman people, Greek and non-Jewish people. And so for Jesus, this is what serving and giving His life for ransom looks like. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the rulers of this dark world. Religious leaders are going to arrest and condemn Him and hand Him over to Romans. And the Romans are going to strip and flog Him. They're going to dress Him up as a king and they're going to mock Him and make fun of Him. They're going to spit in His face. They're going to beat him and they're going to shred his back with a cat of nine tails. Now all of this is consistent with what the prophets had said. For example, in Isaiah 50 verse 7, the prophet said, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And to add insult to injury, Jesus makes it clear that they will pierce Him and they will kill Him. So when He says the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem to be delivered, He doesn't mean that He's going up to be rescued and saved. He means He's going up to be handed over unto death. Now all of this, From one angle, it looks like something that men have done, that this is just bad circumstances and Jesus is in a perfect storm and you've got people rallying against Him and they're going to bring about His death. But the Scriptures make it clear that from another angle, Jesus was delivered up over to the hands of wicked men and to the death of the cross by none other than His Father. As it is written in the book of Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He makes his life an offering for guilt. And then Jesus says that after three days in this cosmic exile under the power of death, that he will rise up from death to life. And we will look at that more in a couple of weeks. For now, it is enough for us to know that the Son of Man came from heaven to serve God and sinful man. And that He came to give His life as a ransom for many. But I need to make something very clear along the way. And one of the things I need to make clear is that none of the things that we just heard, none of the things that we just saw, happened to Jesus against His will. The Son of Man did not come into the world biting and clawing. He did not go to the cross kicking and screaming. Rather, Jesus came and He went humbly and willingly and obediently. It was the Father who sent Him into the world, and Jesus fulfilled everything the Father sent Him to do. He accomplished the mission that the Father sent Him on. And we see that Jesus did everything the prophets saw in their night visions. Not by wielding a sword, but by bearing the cross. Not by lording it over people, but by loving them. Not by exalting himself above them, but by humbling himself to serve them. And in these ways, Jesus served and gave his life as a ransom and fulfilled his mission. What is a ransom? It's a strange word to show up in the middle of a gospel sermon, isn't it? What is a ransom? The root word for ransom means to loose or to release or to set free by paying a price. So most of us tend to think of a ransom as something like this. Here's an illustration to help uh, kickstart your thinking. Let's say that a plane has been taken captive and passengers are being held hostage by terrorists. In order to secure the rescue and the release of those passengers, negotiators are sent in to learn what the demands of the terrorists are. The terrorists state their demands, they set the terms, they determine the price it will take to satisfy them. The negotiators do what they can to satisfy the terrorists. And if and when the terrorist demands are, melt, are met and they feel satisfied, when the ransom price is paid in full, then they are to release the hostages and then the passengers are rescued. Now I mention all of that because that's how many people think of ransom. And they think that Jesus must have done something like that. And there are two massive myths, and I say myth to avoid using the word heresies, but I think they're massive heresies that come along with this misunderstanding of ransom. The first one goes like this. The first myth, the first heresy says that Jesus negotiated with the devil for our rescue and our release. That Jesus and the devil negotiated, cut a deal for our rescue and release. That is heresy number one. Heresy number two says that Jesus negotiated and cut a deal with God the Father for our rescue and our release. And I want to take a minute to show you why these two myths, why these two heresies are so dangerous. The first one first. Jesus did not negotiate with the devil for our rescue and release. And those who say He did... Have probably not thought through the consequences of that idea very much. It is true that we were like passengers being held hostage, and it is true that we could describe the devil as a kind of terrorist. But we must keep in mind the truth about Jesus Christ, and that is that Jesus is our Savior and mediator. He is not a negotiator, He doesn't bargain with the devil. The devil is treacherous and cannot be trusted to do the right thing ever. He cannot be trusted to negotiate terms of a ransom, much less to keep his word or to uphold his end of the deal. The devil did not have the right or the authority to even set a ransom price for the release of hostages. Nothing was ever owed to the devil, not by God or by man. And so we conclude that the devil did not receive any payment for our release. God didn't owe him anything. You didn't owe him anything. And by the way, nothing would ever satisfy him, especially the lifeblood of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. So Jesus did not negotiate with the devil for our rescue and release. Jesus was never ever at the mercy of the evil one, and nor were his people. We live, we move, we exist at the justice and mercy of God alone. So that puts to bed that one, that first myth. Here's the second myth, the second heresy. Jesus did not negotiate with the Father for our rescue and release. Now this view came up because some people believe that there's tension between the Father and the Son. And that the Father is so angry, He has this blinding rage against people who have sinned against Him that nothing can satisfy Him or nothing can please Him. And so He's ready to wipe everyone out. And then Jesus says, wait, let me try one more time to save them and say, look, here's what I did. Please don't hurt them. And so Jesus is presented by some as, as one who negotiates the terms of our rescue and release with the Father. But that's not what happened. It's not what happened. Jesus, again, is our mediator and savior, but that does not mean that he had to convince his father to love us or care for us or forgive us or release us. He didn't have to persuade his father to release us from bondage or rescue us from sins. How do we know that? We know it because Jesus makes it clear throughout His own testimony and His ministry that the Father is the one who sent Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to give His life as a ransom for us. In other words, it's the Father's idea to rescue and save His people. The purpose and plan of this ransom of sinners arose within the counsel of the triune God. The Father arranged for our redemption, the Son accomplished our redemption, and the Spirit applies redemption to us. And so Jesus did not negotiate with the Father for our rescue and release. He simply came on mission to do His Father's will. The Father alone had set the terms and conditions of our ransom and release. And the ransom price is the price Jesus paid to the Father to rescue and release captives. And that ransom price was the blood of the Son of Man. Now, does that make the Father a cold-hearted terrorist? Some would say so. Does it make him a cosmic child abuser? There are critics of the atonement who would say so. But our answer to that would be, by no means. God forbid... It makes God a tender-hearted Savior, a tender-hearted Father, a compassionate friend, a brother seeking His kinsmen. It shows that God not only provides the way of rescue and release, but it shows that He also paid the ransom for His people at a great personal cost to Himself. So who reaps the benefits of this ransom? Does the devil reap any benefit from this ransom? Well, no. We've tried to show that the devil didn't receive any payment for our release. That God owed him nothing and we owe him nothing. And he was not given anything, nor was he satisfied by what Jesus did on behalf of his people. We have to remember that the devil is the one who kick-started this mess in the first place. He was not satisfied with his position, nor satisfied with our position. There is nothing that will ever satisfy him. So when the Father sends his Son into the world by the power of the Spirit to serve God and to give his life a ransom for many, Jesus comes from heaven to earth on a top secret, maximum security rescue mission. To do what? To ransom his people once for all by crushing his heel as he crushed the serpent's head. So the devil did not reap any benefit from the ransom of Jesus Christ at all. In fact, he was completely dissatisfied by it and totally destroyed by it. For those who are inclined to wonder what role the devil plays in all of this, here's one way that might help you think of what he's up to. Think of the devil sort of like a collection agent that is harassing you. He's trying to collect a debt from you that you actually owe someone else, but He wants you to pay Him so that He'll leave you alone. All you need to remember is that your debt was never with the devil. It will never be with the devil. Any debt you have or I have is only with God and with God alone. The Scriptures make it clear that it is against God only that we have sinned and done what is wicked in His sight. And since the wages of sin is death, we do deserve to die. We deserve God's displeasure. We deserve to dwell in darkness. We deserve to live under the dread and fear of God and His judgment. We deserve exile. We deserve separation from God for our sins. We owe Him everything. We owe the devil nothing. But here we have this gospel truth that the Son of Man comes to give His life a ransom for many. The Son of Man comes and pays the debt that He did not owe for sinners who had a debt they could never pay. And the Father is totally satisfied by this sacrificial service of His Son, Jesus Christ, on behalf of sinners. So Jesus' blood sacrifice, Jesus' blood ransom satisfies the Father. It soothes His holy wrath. It, it satisfies His righteous decrees and righteous requirements. God is completely satisfied with what Jesus has done on our behalf. But just to put things in sharp contrast for you, the devil would never be satisfied with Jesus' ransom. But the Father will never be dissatisfied with it. The Father will never be displeased with what Jesus has done for His people, and that means the Father will never be displeased with His people or dissatisfied with them if they are in Christ by faith. So the Father reaps the benefits of Jesus' ransom, but so do you, so do I, so do many, because He gave His lifeblood for them. But who are these many that Jesus talks about? Even the Son of Man came to serve and not be served and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus says that He intended to give His life a ransom, and that's good. And He extends the benefits of His ransom to many. There's a part of us that wants it to say, His ransom to all. And there's some who might even be inclined to say, well, He gave His life a ransom for a few. But Jesus uses the specific word, many. And I want you to know that this is consistent with the Holy Scriptures from the Old Testament into the New Testament. To give you a couple of examples. In Isaiah 53, 11-12, we learn that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He bore the sin of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said to his disciples, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And in Hebrews 9, 27 to 28, we learn that just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, it has been my pastoral experience that when people see and hear that Jesus did not give His life a ransom for all, that there is usually some kind of an emotional reaction. People feel troubled, upset, angered, or sorrowed by this. And that might include some of you this evening. And rest assured that I've been there as well. I've felt that sting in my heart. But let me try to help you process this a little bit. Sometimes we feel that this text should say that Jesus gave His life a ransom for all because deep down inside, some of us feel that God owes us something. That God is indebted to us and we're not indebted to Him. And since God is indebted to us, we believe, or at least we feel, that everyone deserves at least a chance to get saved, that God at least owes that to us. But let me explain why that might be a problem. Let me explain why it is a problem. People who hold a view like that, who believe that Jesus died for all, He gave His life a ransom for all, end up having to believe that Jesus simply made salvation possible for everyone in general. Which is another way of saying that Jesus died for no one in particular. So when you say Jesus gave His life a ransom for all, you end up with something like this, that Jesus gave His life simply to make salvation possible for everyone. That Jesus becomes then a potential Savior. A potential salvation is then offered to potential, potentially savable sinners. And so you have here not the redemptive work of Christ, but the redemptive potential of Christ. Might be good news, might not be good news. But the onus is then placed on sinners. It's only good news if the sinner does something. But that is not how the gospel is presented to us in Scripture. It's presented as good news whether any sinners respond by faith or not. It's good news because this is God's gracious work in the person of Jesus Christ. And so on that first view that some of us wrestle with, what you end up is with Jesus shedding His blood for all, but His blood may or may not get used by any. And what you also end up with is Jesus shedding His blood for all and much of that blood going to waste, not being used, not accomplishing the purpose for which it was shed. And knowing what we know about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we have to know that God does nothing in vain. Jesus Christ laid down His life, gave His life a ransom for many. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus came to give His life to rescue and release as many as the Father sent Him to ransom. He did not shed His blood in vain. None of His blood will be unused or left over by God or by sinners, especially by sinners who don't want it. He purchased redemption for as many sinners as the Father sent Him to redeem. He did not overspend His blood. He did not underspend His blood. All the sinners for whom Jesus gave His life will reap the benefits of His ransom, and none of His blood will ever be wasted or go to waste. Now, I've been around long enough to know that sometimes when people hear the word many, what they actually hear is the word few instead of many. And since they didn't hear the word all, they think God must be a cheapskate. And he doesn't really want anyone to say it except a tiny few. But is that what Jesus said? No, he said he came to give his life a ransom for many. And while you and I don't know the exact number of all the ransom and all the redeemed and who they are, we can rest assured that God knows who they are. All we need to know that it is many and not a few. And the scriptures tell us clearly that it is by his blood that Jesus ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he has made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And he goes on to say that the actual number of the ransomed is so great that no one can number the many. The many who are ransomed from every nation and from every tribe and from every people and every language. The number of the ransomed and the redeemed is so great that no one can number it except God alone. And the thing I want you to see about all of those who are numbered among the many who are ransomed by Jesus Christ, they are depicted in Revelation 7 as being a people who stand in worship before the throne of God and before Jesus the Lamb, clothed in white robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and they are crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. You have a picture of the ransomed many rejoicing in the truth of the gospel that God does not pay salvation to any as a debt or a wage, but He gives salvation freely to many as a gift of grace. Now, it's also been my pastoral experience that people wonder when they hear this kind of thing, they get nervous. Some of you seem nervous. Maybe I just feel nervous. But we wonder, how can anyone know whether they are one of the many for whom Jesus gave His life? How can you know whether Jesus ransomed you? And the answer is actually easier than you probably even imagine. Here's how you can know. You must repent and believe the gospel. You must repent and believe the Gospel and then you will know whether Jesus gave His life as a ransom for you. You must turn from your sins. You must turn from yourself. You must trust in the Savior to save you. And then and only then, as you do this by faith from the heart, you will know by experience that what Jesus has done for many he has done for you also. And that's good news. There's no reason why anyone gathered here this evening should walk out of this place with any doubt, with any lack of assurance, with any lack of confidence over their standing before God. If you turn from yourself and trust in Jesus as your Savior, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that He has laid down His life for you. Remember the psalm we heard before the sermon? The psalm that we heard? Remember what it said? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The psalmist tells us that no man can ransom another man because the cost, the price, is too high to pay. That's at the front end of the psalm. But then at the end of the psalm, after he's explained that no man is able to do this, we might ask, well, if no man can give his life a ransom for other, how could Jesus say that he came to give his life as a ransom for many? And the psalmist gives us the answer. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. You see, with man, ransom is impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. And what sinful man is unable to do for himself and for others, being weakened by his own sin, God did for us in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Jesus is our satisfaction because He satisfied God the Father in our place, on our behalf, for our sake, when He gave His life a ransom for us. Let us pray together. O God, according to your wise counsel, this congregation of your people is one part of the whole church of God, which the God-man obtained with his own blood. O Father, we call on you in our time of exile, knowing that we were ransomed from the futile ways of life inherited from our forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. O Jesus, keep us safe from fierce wolves that seek to come in among us and ravage your flock. O Spirit, help us remember that we are your temple, a sacred dwelling for our God. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. So grant us the grace to honor you with our body and soul. And keep us from becoming enslaved to men. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who laid down his life for our sake, we pray. Amen.